Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Juneteenth, June 19th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting the show on Monday, June the 21st, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 61st post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos and bringing light into darkness Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on co-op radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are therefore preventable and reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Tonight, in honor of Juneteenth, we seek to define systemic racism in our country by recognizing, acknowledging, and defining the constant and unrelenting oppression of blacks that has continued unabated since slavery to this very day and is measurable and documentable. We will show that the only thing that has changed are the means and methods that oppression has expressed itself since the founding of our country. As here in the 21st century, unfortunately, a second-class citizenry status persists for African Americans. Enjoy. Good evening, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. You can access this show and many other fine shows at koop.org. Today's show is dedicated to Juneteenth, and today is Saturday, June the 19th, Juneteenth, if you will. And it is a federal holiday for the first time in our country's history. As last Tuesday, June the 15th, the Senate voted unanimously to make Juneteenth a national holiday. The next day on the 16th, the House passed the bill by a vote of 415 to 14. And yesterday, Thursday, June the 18th, President Biden signed the bill. And this month being June, Co-op Radio celebrates two events annually, Juneteenth 
in Stonewall. And just as an aside, I wanted to acknowledge and pay homage to all my lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer or questioning friends. But I also wanted to share with you the content of our co-op webpage announcement regarding Juneteenth for a little historical background, and which will provide an outline of sorts for a significant portion of our show tonight. This month is Co-op Radio's Juneteenth Celebration Event Month. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Dating back to 1865, it was on June 19th that the Union soldiers, led by Major General Gordon Granger, landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. However, this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official on January 1st, 1863. If we fast forward to May 17, 1954, another landmark legal reform that also largely went ignored and unenforced, this time by our Supreme Court case ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education, was made. The U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the separate but equal doctrine in Plessy versus Ferguson was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal treatment under the law. But again, promises in law were not executed in practice as more than a decade later, just like with the Emancipation Proclamation nearly a century before, quote-unquote, laws made but not followed enabled second-class citizenry of black U.S. citizens to continue. In fact, Malcolm X referred to this 1954 Supreme Court decision and our refusal to enforce it as proof to support his conclusions, which he reiterated in his February 14, 1965 speech just one week ahead of his assassination, which was more than a decade after our highest court declared equal treatment under the law and an end to segregation as the rule of the land. Yet, segregation continued unencumbered. This is what he said, quote, I would like to point out that the approach that was used by the administration right up until today by even the present generation was designed skillfully to appear that they were trying to solve the problem when they actually were not. They would deal with the conditions, but never the cause. They only gave us tokenism. Tokenism benefits only the few. It never benefits the masses. And the masses are the ones that have the problems, not the few." End quote. Does the explosion of protests sweeping our nation following George Floyd's murder by the police come largely from frustrations and the focus again being more focused on the conditions rather than the causes of systemic racism? Is it sufficient progress to have progressive laws if they are not followed while second-class citizenry for blacks continues well into the 21st century? Today, gross inequalities continue to exist. Just one example is that blacks are 13 to 14 percent of the U.S. population, yet possess just 2 to 3 percent of its wealth, while the average black family has $840,000 less wealth than the average black family. Please join Co-op Radio throughout June in celebration of Juneteenth to celebrate black history, tradition, pride, and progress. And to question if progress can be at the same time a lack of progress. So one of our themes tonight is that, in fact, progress can be, and in this situation of the black experience, is a lack of progress. Often racism is presented as a receding form of oppression in our history in which great progress has been made to the point that if you are black, 
the preponderance of forces that determine whether you will succeed lays within the individual rather than in the external forces of society which consist of systemic racism. There are a number of manifestations of systemic racism that we can cite. For example, for black families and other families of color, studying and working hard is not associated with the same levels of wealth amassed among whites. This is documented in the 2015 April report, Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain, Why Studying and Working Hard Isn't Enough for Black Americans, and it's by the prestigious economists Derek Hamilton and Dr. William Darity et al., they cite, quote, black families whose heads of households graduated from college have about 33% less wealth than white families whose head of households dropped out of high school, end quote. At the same time that because I, as a white person, do not feel prejudice towards African Americans and that I, as a white person, may consciously neither advocate, support, nor tolerate racism, it is not something I am therefore directly responsible for. But there are other ways to consider looking at this white privilege I was born into and therefore did not have to work for to earn. Because I am white, I and all other white Americans as a subpopulation of our country and its historical benefactors, I have benefited as a member of a class of people, white people, from what we would see as part of our Juneteenth celebration, the different historical epics of subjugation of blacks that collectively make up the history of our nation. Nor have I had to concern myself with the dehumanizing experience many blacks have had throughout their lifetime living in a racist culture. But this history of the black experience within our country's past, which we will detail later in this program, it lies within a larger context that also is marked by profound inequity, namely that of wealth inequality as a nation. In fact, in a market-driven capitalist economy, those with the most wealth have the greatest access to power. With extraordinary wealth comes extraordinary power. Additionally, even our basic rights, such as freedom, freedom from want and need, are inextricably connected to economic wealth and to economic welfare. Therefore, how wealth is distributed throughout our country's population can be used as a barometer of sorts to measure the quality of our democracy. Because our mainstream media rarely covers wealth inequality, not many of us consider that the victory of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton may have had much more to do with the increasing financial stressors of the middle and lower classes of our nation and that we will be detailing tonight that led up to the 2016 election instead of the unproven claims that Russia interfered in our elections in any substantial way. As detailed in the article, Trends to Income and Wealth Inequality, January 9th, 2020, in Pew Research, by Juliana Menesse Horowitz, Ruth Eaglenick, and Rakesh Kochar, quote, From 1983 to 2016, the share of aggregate wealth going to the upper-income families increased from 60 to 79 percent. Meanwhile, the share held by middle-class income families has been cut nearly in half, falling from 32% to 17%. This is your middle-class income. Finally, the quote continues, lower-income families had only a 4% of aggregate wealth in 2016, down from 7% in 1983. From the same source, as a result, the wealth gap between Americans' richest and poorest families more than doubled 
from 1989 to 2016. In 1989, the richest 5% of families had 114 times as much wealth as families in the second lowest quintile, the second 20%. That amount was 2.3 million compared with the second quintile, 20,300. By 2016, this ratio had increased to 248 times, over doubling the 114 times in 1989, a much sharper rise than the widening gap in income. As a result, the wealth gap between America's richest and poorer families more than doubled from 1989 to 2016. And then finally, the wealthiest families are also the ones to have experienced gains in the years after the start of the Great Recession in 2007. From 2007 to 2016, the median net worth of the richest 20% increased 13% to $1.2 million. For the top 5%, it increased by 4%. To 4.8 million. In contrast, the net worth of families in the lower tiers of wealth decreased by at least 20% from 2007 to 2016. The greatest loss, 39%, was experienced by the families in the second quintile of wealth, whose wealth fell from 32,100 to in 2007 to 19,500 in 2016. What kind of social economic system only insulates its wealthy elite? from the catastrophic effects of a dramatic economic downturn. So when we talk about systemic racism and structural inequality, we must understand at its core lies wealth inequality. Of course, systemic racism is more than wealth inequality alone. But today, to celebrate Juneteenth, 2021, we want to focus on the history of how, well into the 21st century, according to the 2016 Survey of Consumer Finances, the great race wealth divide persists with white household median wealth at $171,000, a sum that is 10 times greater than the black medium household of wealth, which is at 17600 Tonight we show how this gross racial wealth inequality is the outcome of a history of racism which we describe as systemic racism. Rarely is it ever analyzed and documented as a historical process marked by different forms of oppression during different epochs of time, and that is what we intend to present tonight. But before we turn to that historical systemic racism focus, wanted to return to our current topic of the overall wealth inequality that exists in our country today. The Business Insider had a remarkable analysis on October 30th of 2020 by Hyatt Woods. They put together a audio video clip, and it really is about how billionaires saw their net worth increase by half a trillion dollars during the pandemic. So listen to this seven or eight minute clip. It has stunning revelations. This is the unemployment rate during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos' net worth during that same time span. From March to June 2020, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos saw his wealth rise by an estimated $48 billion. The founder of the video conferencing platform Zoom grew his nest egg by over $2.5 billion. And former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer's net worth increased by $15.7 billion. These kinds of examples might lead you to think that when billionaires profit during a crisis, it's just a matter of right place, right time. Well, that's not false, but it's not entirely true either. 
Casino magnate Sheldon Adelson saw his wealth increase by $5 billion, while Elon Musk saw an increase of $17.2 billion. When you add up the numbers, billionaires in the United States have increased their total net worth $637 billion during the COVID-19 pandemic so far. At the same time, more than 40 million Americans filed for unemployment. With tens of millions of Americans out of a paycheck and the stock market plummeting by 37% in March, how is it that the rich have continued getting richer? This isn't the first time billionaires have seen gains while a large portion of Americans were feeling losses. When the housing bubble burst in 2007, home prices fell 21%, and roughly 3.1 million homes were foreclosed on in the United States. The stock market plummeted by over 50%, and by the end of 2009, 8.8 .8 million Americans had lost their jobs. And the effects lingered. From 2009 to 2012, the incomes of the bottom 99% grew by only 0.4%. But the income of the top 1% grew by a staggering 31.4% in the same time span. And it all ties back to two things. First, the government disproportionately gave more aid to banks and corporations. In 2008, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act was signed into law, creating a $700 billion program to purchase devalued assets from banks. This was called the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. Later, President Obama would direct $75 billion in funds from TARP to help reduce interest payments for homeowners. That means homeowners received around 10% of the direct relief that banks and corporations did. And this leads to reason number two. When the stock market bounced back, the unequal bailouts meant that the wealthy still had money on hand to invest and thus profit, while the middle and lower classes did not. In 2008, the Federal Reserve lowered short-term interest rates to near zero. They would remain that low for nearly a decade. This paved the way for a historic bull market on Wall Street that began in 2009 and lasted until March 2020, when the pandemic hit. In that time, the S&P 500 gained 462%. That means that a $1,000 investment in the S&P 500 at the low point of the financial crisis could have returned roughly $4,620 while someone who could afford a $1 million investment could have pulled in over $4.6 million. By 2009, the world's high net worth individuals had grown their share of global wealth by 19% to $39 trillion, recouping nearly all of their losses in a single year. That quick recovery and larger share of the world's wealth enabled them to continue to make money at an exponential rate. In fact, the top 1% captured 95% of the income gains made from 2009 to 2012. And by 2020, the combined wealth of the billionaire class in the United States had increased by over 80%. Which brings us back to the moment when the coronavirus pandemic rocked the economy. In 2019, the Fed reported that four in 10 Americans didn't have enough cash in their bank accounts to cover a $400 unexpected expense. And in the first few months of 2020, 40 million Americans found themselves unemployed due to COVID-19. Many small businesses had to close due to lockdowns and social distancing, while others were forced to try to operate with entirely remote staff. 
The Small Business Administration made $349 billion available to small businesses with the Paycheck Protection Program. But like in 2008, $243 million of that was snapped up by large, publicly traded corporations, some of which were valued at over $100 million. Even hedge funds submitted claims to try to tap into what they saw as free money. On March 16, 2020, just five days after COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, the Dow suffered the worst single-day points drop in its history. But by June 4, seven of the world's richest people had seen their fortunes increase by over 50%. Part of what made this possible was a stock market rebound, fueled both by the Paycheck Protection Program and actions by the Fed. Again, the Fed lowered short-term interest rates for banks to near 0%. And as before, they have promised to hold those rates low until the economy is on track. This is a cycle that has happened time and time again. During the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, only 2.5% of the 195 million of relief funds went to Haitian companies. Much of the rest was awarded to DC-based construction companies. And when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans in 2005, Real estate developer Joseph Canizaro said the clearing out caused by Katrina represented some very big opportunities. Canizaro was selected as part of a panel to develop the Bring New Orleans Back plan, part of which put a stop on reconstruction of low-income neighborhoods until the residents returned. Of course, residents couldn't return to their destroyed homes, and many were foreclosed on, paving the way for others to buy those properties and develop them. When the time did come to rebuild New Orleans, the engineering and construction company KBR received no-bid contracts from the federal government for tens of millions of dollars. KBR received $31 billion in contracts from the government between 2001 and 2010. Vice President Dick Cheney served as CEO of KBR's parent company Halliburton for the five years leading up to his two terms in office. Combined with their immense investing and purchasing power, Billionaires have had government resources in addition to their own resources to profit from during economic upheavals. And wealth-friendly tax laws and loopholes then keep those billionaires at the top. Legal structures such as limited liability companies protect personal assets from being repossessed to pay the debts from business downturns. As it's set up today, IRS rules allowed Amazon to pay zero dollars in taxes two years in a row. When its bill finally came due in 2019, it paid just $162 million, a measly 1.2% of the company's income that year. And it's not just Amazon. Taxes paid by billionaires have decreased 79% since 1980, and those are just the legal avenues that the wealthy take to avoid paying taxes. In 2017, researchers estimated that about 10% of the world's GDP was stashed in offshore tax havens. A study in 2012 found that as much as 32 trillion was being held offshore by the world's wealthiest people. So, after reviewing all this, what can be done to help level the playing field? A recent report by the Institute for Policy Studies lays out several action items. It suggests forming a pandemic profiteering oversight committee that would go beyond the oversight of federal stimulus money. It also supports the Corporate Transparency Act, which would create stronger regulations to prevent U.S. billionaires from using shell corporations to hide their income. After the House passed the bill in 2019, it was introduced in the Senate, but has not been brought to a vote. Other suggestions include an emergency 10% millionaire income surtax, a stimulus package aimed at funding charities, instituting a wealth tax, 
and reducing the amount allowed by the gift and estate tax. Last, and perhaps most importantly, the report underscores the need to shut down the global hidden wealth economy. The U.S. alone is estimated to lose nearly $200 billion in tax revenues to offshore havens each year. That's roughly three times the amount of all the money budgeted for the Department of Education in 2021. Changes like the ideas above are global in scale and require political cooperation to become reality. If the relationship between wealth and income inequality are ever going to change, it's going to require all of us. This Business Insider YouTube of 2020 that we just cited reveals, I think, very well the predatory nature of our economic system. When disaster strikes, the character of our economic social system reveals itself. And it reveals itself by, instead of women and children first, it's women and children last. This is undeniable from the examples that we just heard in this last clip. And just as between March 18th, 2020 and April 12th, 2021, during the heart of the COVID crisis, the collective wealth of some 614 American billionaires leaped by $1.62 trillion this is data from the American Tax Fairness Institute for Policy Studies citation. Meanwhile, as we've already mentioned, if we go back to the Great Recession, the wealthiest families are the only ones that experience gains in wealth in those years as well. After the start of the recession in 2007 to 2016, the median net worth of the richest 20% increased by some 1.2 million or 13%. Meanwhile, the net worth of families in the lower tiers of wealth decreased by at least 20% from 2007 to 2016, with the greatest loss, 39%, being experienced by the families in the second quintile of wealth whose wealth fell from 32,100 in 2007 to 19,500 in 2016. This makes up a large part of our middle class that's getting pulverized. This is what is meant by the predatory nature of our system, where the rich get richer and the rest of the American population are increasingly in dire straits. But we need to take a Pause for the cause. I want to remind you, this is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, and we will be back with our analysis in just a moment. Stay tuned, and please don't touch that dial.